big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin, we'd like to thank our newest patrons, Joya, Rochelle, Rachel, and Cheyenne. Welcome to the team. We love our patrons more than anything, and we are so close to our goal of getting new audio equipment. If you want to help make that happen and also earn our undying gratitude, head on over to patreon.com slash pod and prejudice. And now enjoy this week's episode covering chapters 32 through 34 of Sense and Sensibility. We have like boring chapters by comparison. They're fun, but... They were definitely... I mean, the thing is they were long and I was like, nothing is happening, Jane Austen. But then like at the same time, things were happening like funny things were happening. Oh yeah. It's, um, she was like, oh yeah, there was so much drama in the last few chapters. I need to take a breather. And now we're back in like witticism world for a little while. Yeah. It's great. It's like a brief little reprieve after the drama. That was like the drama, like the literal drama. This part's more like the petty drama. Oh yeah. Because we got the return of Fanny Dashwood, so of course it is. Ooh, Ooh. let's get into it. This is Becca. This is Molly. We are here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about Sense and Sensibility, chapters 32 through 34, or volume the second, chapters 10 through 12. Listeners, if you are new here, I, Molly, have never read any Jane Austen before doing this podcast. I, Becca, have read many Jane Austens before doing this podcast, although probably not as closely as I am now. (laughs) Uh, If you want to hear Molly's journey through Pride and Prejudice, our first book we covered, that can be found in season one of this podcast, but that is not what we're doing here today. No, although I am constantly thinking about Pride and Prejudice these days, let's be real. Mm, Because you're Mr. Darcy. I am such a Mr. Darcy. I just can't. I mean... It's just a constant. So, uh, sips wine. I'm just, uh, the Bingley to your Darcy. You are. Or the Jane to my Lizzie. Yeah. Or the Eleanor to my Marianne, which is getting us right back on track. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's to get us right back to where we are covering Sense and Sensibility today. So, Becca, where did we leave off yesterday when we recorded this? Listeners, you guys are getting a two-week break, but we just recorded our last episode yesterday. Oh, we left off in chaos. Chaos, pure chaos. And by chaos, I mean the immense tragedy of Colonel Brandon, the the sad chapter, as we will call it, sad insensibility. Sad insensibility. (laughs) Where you learn about Colonel Brandon's foray into deep and tragic heartbreak huh, man! and we all collectively fell even more in love with him of course and so now going off of that Eleanor relays the information to Marianne who like I thought didn't take it quite as they had hoped like they thought this was gonna make her be like Phew, 
dodged a bullet there. And she's like, oh my God, he's a terrible person. Um, I really enjoyed this quote. She felt the loss of Willoughby's character yet more heavily than she had felt the loss of his heart. Yeah. Because she fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. Oh my God. I mean, have you ever had to grapple with somebody you love being a worse person than you thought they were? Oh yeah. It is so brutal. Yeah, and you have to be like, what does that say about me, too, that I fell for that? No one likes to be made to feel a fool. And I'm not saying Marianne was made to feel a fool because I think this is the type of thing that could happen to anybody. Oh, yeah. But unfortunately for Marianne, it does show some chinks in her armor and not in a flattering way. Especially because she thought she was so good at judging people's character. Absolutely. And you might remember that Marianne really defined herself by her belief that, like, First love is it. You have a soulmate. You meet your love and that is it. So not only. <gasps> I forgot about that. Oh my God. Yes. Marianne is such a firm believer in first love. And Willoughby was her first love. And her first love was a lie. And that sucks. Mm. So he hasn't just taken away her beautiful experience of him as a person. He has taken away her worldview. And that is harder to get over. So homegirl is not doing well. No. But. Jane Austen does note that this means that she's actually kind of chummy with Brandon now. Yes. They know that she, like, will smile at him occasionally. She doesn't avoid him anymore, which is really nice. She actually converses with him now. Like, she talks to him, which must be giving him the sweats. Bare minimum, but yes. She does not run away when she sees him coming. A win for our boy. Yes, yes. This is, like, progress. Yes. Progress in seduction. <laughs> Slow and steady. Yeah, it's like when you get that, like, number exchange or that Instagram follow. Yes, exactly. So, yes, that's happening. Her mom is equally as upset as she is. She's telling Marianne to be strong, which we know how bad it is because Mrs. Dashwood is like, feel your feelings, girl, all the time, crying and everything. And she's like, no, be strong. You can't let him get the satisfaction. Oh, yeah. And also, like, there's a long debate of whether or not she should come back to Barton Mm -hmm. because she's in distress. And, okay, Mrs. Dashwood doesn't want her to come home. And her reasoning, I think, I'm like, "Mm, I don't know. She's like, you're less likely to run into him in London because none of your friends are going to stay friends with him after this. One, two, they'll always be around to like help you avoid him. If you come back to Barton, you might run into him when he's home for his wedding. There was also the implication, not even the implication, I think there was a line that said, when you're here, you're going to be thinking about all the times you guys shared together. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Fair. There's more amusement in London. Yeah, there's more distraction in London by that logic. But I think both girls are not having a good time in London. No. So I loved this because, like, Marianne sitting there thinking, like, oh, I'm going to have to suffer, but at least this is better for Eleanor. And Eleanor is sitting there like, oh, my God, I'm probably going to run into Edward soon, but at least this is better for Marianne. And neither of them wants to be there. Oh, my God. It's just the the misery of a lack of communication. Because imagine if they were both like, I hate it here. Oh, my God, I hate it here. Let's go home. Communication, baby. Communication, baby. Another reason why their mom doesn't want them to come home, though, is because their brother is coming to town and she wants them to see him because they should probably see him at some point. Did we forget about John and Fanny Dashwood? I completely did. Graham, their music. Their music sounds like Give us give us something in the vein of uh Darth Vader's 
music. What's the name of that actual movie? The Imperial March, baby. The Imperial March, yeah. Give us something in the vein of the Imperial March. But like Regency era. <laughs> yes. Graham, we're getting really specific here, uh, but let your creative juices flow and give us some <laughs> music for John and Fanny Dashwood. So nobody mentions Willoughby around Marianne anymore, which is like completely Eleanor's doing because she told them all to stop that. However, when she's not around, they're constantly talking to Eleanor about it. Poor baby. It's so juicy. And like, they're doing the bare minimum of tact of not like making Marianne deal with all their gossip and like hatred of him. But that means Eleanor has to deal with it double. Mm -hmm. So we've got Sir John being like, I will never talk to him again. Mrs. Palmer, this might be my favorite part. (laughs) She says, She hated him so much that she was resolved never to mention his name again. And she should tell everybody she saw how good for nothing he was. Oh, my favorite part of that, like, line of ranting about Willoughby is, first of all, Sir John going, oh, my God, how could he act that way? He's such a wonderful rider. I've never seen a man on a horse like that. And then Mrs. Palmer resolving to never speak to him again and being quite glad she'd never spoken to him in the first place. (laughs) Mrs. Palmer is the funniest. Also, there was something in there about Sir John being like, and to think that I almost sold him one of my dogs or something like, oh, oh, here it is. It was only the last time they met that he had offered him one of Folly's puppies, and this was the end of it. Willoughby does not deserve a puppy. No! He already has a good dog. Do you know people who have good dogs and are (gasps) bad people? They're the worst. I forgot that he had a good dog. Remember? He had a pointer. I do. He had a pointer. That was him. And then Mrs. Palmer being like, I hate him so much. I'll never talk about him. And I'll tell everybody that he's a bad person. It's like, girl. Anyway, love, love them. Love that. And then Eleanor's like, thank God Lady Middleton doesn't give a shit about my sister's feelings because she's at least quiet about it. And Lady Middleton, she like once a day will comment saying, it's all very shocking. And then quote, Having thus supported the dignity of her own sex and spoken her decided censure of what was wrong in the other, she could just go back to her life and and party planning. And she even says that she's going to invite Mrs. Willoughby to her parties, which seems like an odd move. To be fair, it's not Mrs. Willoughby's fault. No. That this has all happened, but still. Of course, and we've been over that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but still. If you invite Mrs. Willoughby, then John... Willoughby is going to show up. Also, there are now three people named John in their immediate circle, and I'm upset. Yeah, no, they have to cut a John. They should cut two Johns, really. Like, John Middleton can stay. He's annoying, but he's fine. Mm-hmm. But John Dashwood and John Willoughby, got to get out of here. Yeah. Okay, so Colonel Brandon, meanwhile, becomes Eleanor's confidant because he has earned her trust with his whole shtick. So we start to see Marianne softening towards him, which Eleanor finds very encouraging. However, Mrs. Jennings is watching Brandon and Eleanor talking about Marianne because they're like, you know, they'll like talk about it together. Mrs. Jennings thinks, huh, perhaps I've been shipping the wrong ship. This is the chapter that everyone gets on the Molly Burdick train and like starts being like, why aren't Eleanor and Brandon getting together? Yeah, all of the characters got on that train. I was like, oh, okay, now we're really trying to play at my heartstrings here, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. just when you've gotten the rant from me about why Eleanor and Brandon are ill-suited to each other, boom, all the characters in the book are like, what if they're well-suited for each other? Exactly, and 
here's the thing. The thing is that we all, as the readers, I think, see this from the beginning. But now that the characters are getting on board with it, it's like at this point, all right, not we all, me. I've finally just come to terms with the fact that they are not getting together. Now everyone is trying to tell me that they are going to get together. Eleanor is like, no. And I'm like, hmm. I feel like I'm being reintroduced to a time in my past that I shouldn't be getting back into, but like I really want It's to. like you were a girl who read Dramini fan fiction and you saw those rumors that Tom Felton and Emma Watson <laughs> were getting together. Exactly. That is exactly how this feels. <laughs> we're going to tackle that whole thing in the study questions a little bit. Okay, great. So anyway, Mrs. Jennings is starting to ship them. Two weeks pass, and we learn that Willoughby has gotten married, and he and his wife have left town. Eleanor hopes that this way, Marianne might start going out again, knowing she won't see him. Oh, I was just going to say, have you seen that episode of Sex in the City? Where um, Big, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen this decades old show, but Carrie's like reading through the Sunday Times or whatever, and she just comes across this announcement that her ex got married to his fiance. And everyone at the table just freezes and she goes, well, that's it. He's married. And she like asks for a refill of coffee, but it's so tense. I feel like that's the vibe. Yes, because Eleanor does not want Marianne to find out that way. She tells her herself before the papers come out and everything. And she's like, well, he's married. Well, he's married now. It was, you know, maybe there was the slightest hope before that he wasn't going to get married, but it's over. No, it's more like it was a known thing that was going to happen, but it like reopens the wound when it happens, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So Marianne's like, okay. And then she bursts into tears. (laughs) Like she's like trying so hard. It said she she bore it with like composure and all this stuff. And then like 20 minutes later, she was on the floor. Then the steals arrive, which (laughs) it says Eleanor only was sorry to see them. But my note was like, and every single reader of this book ever. I feel like Sense and Sensibility definitely just has more unlikable characters than Pride and Prejudice did. And I didn't realize it until I read them like back to back. Yeah. Most of the characters. We are Jennings apologists on this podcast, though. Yes, I saw someone had commented on something that we posted or like was in our DMs or something about Mrs. Jennings being insufferable. And I was like, excuse me? I mean, she's written to be insufferable, but we love her on this podcast. She's phenomenal. see past that unreliable narrator and see that Mrs. Jennings is a booby who is spreading her wealth to the Dashwood girls and giving them a good time. And cares about them, even if she's like crass and gossipy and whatever. She's goals. Yes, she has goals. Everyone should be as sure of themselves and comfortably financially secure as Mrs. Jennings. That's like the goals. Becca and I are like waving our wine glasses around right now. (laughs) (laughs) We're changing our name of our podcast from Pod and Prejudice to Jennings and Prejudice. (laughs) To Jennings Apologists. Jennings Apologists. We are just, all right, if we keep doing this podcast for long enough, we'll eventually be two Jewish grandmas sitting on our porch doing this podcast, and we're going to be called two Jewish grandmas reading Jane Austen on a porch. Well, he's rich and she's Austin. We'll say it's like the youths walk by. Yes. Exactly. I love uh, it. Yeah. All right. So anyway, the steals are there. Lucy keeps, this This whole part had a bunch of like italicized words of like Lucy being way over dramatic about how happy she is that Eleanor is still 
there. She didn't think Eleanor was going to be in town because Eleanor said she was only going to be there for a month. But she's so glad that Eleanor did not keep to her word. Yeah, it's also Regina George. Like, oh, I'm so happy to see you. It's so nice. I love your earrings. Where did you get them? That is the ugliest effing skirt I've ever seen. Yeah, exactly. It's like so over the top in these chapters that like if for some reason you had doubts about Lucy Steele before, you don't have them now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Even Eleanor is like talking about it now. Oh, yeah. And meanwhile, Anne, the contrast here, Anne is just like going on about how they traveled with this man, Dr. Davies, and Mrs. Jennings is teasing her like, oh, he's single. And Anne is just eating it up being like, oh, everyone tells me that me and Dr. Davies, but no, you must contradict it if you ever hear. And she's like, I will not. And Anne is like, okay. Anne just has this like thirst after this guy. Yes. I love that side plot for her. (laughs) It's just a side plot where he's just like this really hot guy. And she's like, stop it. Stop it. We're not together. But like, Stop it. Stop it. Tell me Stop more. It. <laughs> Tell me more. I, I just have to refute everything you've heard about us being together. I mean, I can see how you came to that conclusion. <laughs> yeah. So then Lucy says, you guys are going to stay with your brother when he comes, right? And Eleanor's like, I don't think so. And Lucy's like, oh, you surely will. And Eleanor is just like, not going to engage. They're just being generally annoying. Lucy says it's great that their mom can spare them for so long. And Mrs. Jennings is like, oh, their visit's only just begun. And Lucy is like, "Ah," and like shuts up. Just basically being like, I don't want her here. What is she doing here? Then Anne says she wishes that they could all see Mary Ann. And Eleanor is like, well, she's not feeling too well. And Anne is like, well, we're old friends. And Eleanor is like, well, she's in her PJs. She can't come down right now. And Anne is like, well, we can go up and see her. And then Lucy is like, Anne, shut up. And their vibe, their dynamic between the two of them became so clear in this section with Lucy being the conniving kind of like, oh, like is going to get everything the way she wants. And Anne, they're like the hyenas. In the Lion King. A little, yeah. Because they're they're both a little bit not all there, but Ed and then Lucy is the one, uh, the lead one. Bonsai and Shenzi. Yes. Maybe they're maybe Ed, maybe Anne's not fully Ed. Maybe they're Bonsai and Shenzi. What's a better example of this? Um Kronk and Yzma. <gasps> one of them is evil and a genius, and the other one is kind of evil, but mostly stupid. <laughs> so good so that brings us to chapter 33 eleanor gets marianne to come out with her um she won't go on any visits but she's like i'll go home to the store because eleanor is trying to sell some of their mother's jewels which i liked because we're like remembering oh wait they're poor they need to sell these jewels for money mrs jennings goes off to visit someone down the street and says she'll meet them outside after Now, the shop is super crowded, so they go to the end of the counter where there's just one man, hoping he's going to be polite and let them go first. This, to me, had the energy of, like, trying to find your in at the bar, and, like, they're going up and they're going to, like, bat their eyelashes at this man, and it just does not work at all. See, the the vibe I was getting off this is you're in the Starbucks line, Mm. and it's, like, eight in the morning and it's out the door, and there's a guy who didn't decide what he wanted by the time he got to the cash register, so he's, like, Staring at the list, going, uh, mm, do you guys make no, 
<laughs> yeah, that's what this guy is doing because he's like going on about his toothpick box that he needs special. He's clearly like pimping it out. Yeah. He's like, oh, I need the diamonds and whatever. There's like a weird description of him looking them up and down, like staring at them. And Eleanor is like feeling really weird about it. I, Which is, again, why I was picturing at the bar, because like he checks them out, determines that they are not worth it and continues doing his toothpick thing. Marianne's not noticing any of this, but Eleanor is like, ugh, hate this guy. I do think, though, that we dwelled on him for a little bit too long to the point where I I don't know if it's going to be important, but I am going to remember this interaction. Just putting that on the record. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jane Austen did describe him as a coxcomb. Who else does she describe as a coxcomb? Not anybody like we've met, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the word has come up and I'm not going to remind you. I know that Anne has used the word to describe many of a, many a man, particularly Edward Ferrer's little brother, whose name I forgot, but I remember them saying that he was a coxcomb because my mom asked what a coxcomb was. Okay, okay, cool. So he's like taking his time. He finally finishes with the toothpick case. He turns around, he looks at them again with an expression that, quote, seemed rather to demand than express admiration. And then he leaves, which is such a man thing to do. He like looks at them and he's like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to remember this guy. Mm-hmm. So that all happens. Eleanor finishes up with her jewelry. Another man shows up beside her, which like, again, I just super got like, you're at the bar. There's a man standing next to you too close. He finally leaves and then another one slips into his place and she turns to him and it's her brother. <laughs> Yep, that is John Dashwood back to be annoying again and not as life-ruining this time, but equally, ugh. Yeah, in this chapter, the weird thing about this set of chapters was that I didn't hate John and Fanny as much as I did at the beginning of the book because there was people that I hate more doing worse things, but they were still annoying. He's there. Also, he kind of was more laughable at this point because he's so just, he's such a pushover. Pathetic. Yeah. Yeah. So he says they've been in town two days and he would have called yesterday, but they just they had to take their son to the zoo. And this morning he was just so busy with everything with the thing. But really, he just does what Fanny tells him and she didn't tell him to go call on them. This is real like, oh, my God, I was going to text you vibes. Yeah. Yeah. But they just let him live his spineless life. He's already done the worst that he can do to them. He can't do anything else bad to them anymore. This is true. So. He says he wants to meet Mrs. Jennings in the Middletons, mostly because they're rich. He's like, oh, you've got rich friends. He's just so financially motivated in this whole section. Every time he comments on somebody, he's like, oh, this is how much money they have. When Eleanor is like, they're, oh, yeah, those are, they're good people. He's like, yeah, of course they are. They've got all this money. Have you ever talked to someone who talks like this? Yes, but not necessarily about money per se, but like, they're fixated on one thing about people and they're like oh like where do they go to school or like i i've heard this i've heard this about money really yeah Mm. Mm. yeah i know i know it's wild that this still persists today totally yeah it's gross and not in like they're they're virtuous because they have money but it's like oh yeah this person do you know how rich they are right and it's like okay it's like oh yeah no like those people used to have money but now they don't it's like why are you telling me this? Right. Some people were just like raised to think about that sort of thing, though. John Dashwood, I wouldn't say that he was. 
I would say that he that's just who he is because he got all this money at an early age and then he married this woman who obviously thinks this way and he's just like it's perpetuated. Yeah, I think it's Jane Austen's commentary on the sort of wealth hoarding at the top of society. I mean, once you get to a certain level of wealth, you start to feel like any lack of money is scarcity. When in reality, if you hit a certain level of wealth, you're fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, in this chapter, so we're about to get there, but... Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So he says that Eddie said that their cottage at Barton was lovely. And this is like, Eleanor's like, oh, no, we're going to talk about Edward. Luckily, at that point, Mrs. Jennings' servant arrives and is like, Mrs. Jennings outside. So they go outside. The next day, John does come to visit them, saying Fanny was too busy with her mom, Mrs. Ferrers, and Mrs. Jennings says that she and the Dashwoods will visit Fanny soon anyway because they're all cousins and it doesn't matter who visits who first, um, which was very Mrs. Jennings and I loved it. The Jennings Apologist podcast. <laughs> exactly. Uh, then uh, Colonel Brandon arrives and immediately John takes an interest in Colonel Brandon. There was even a comment about how he needed only to know if the man was rich to like him very much. It's like, uh, shut up. So... John and Eleanor go to meet the Middletons, so they're walking, and John asks her about Colonel Brandon and about his fortune, and Eleanor tells him that Brandon is well settled, and John says, oh, well, congratulations on your respectable establishment in life, and Eleanor does a spit take. She's she's like, what? Yeah, John Dashwood immediately goes in for, oh my god, you guys are perfect for each other, and he's just... Shipping. And listen, I don't blame him. I know. But the fact that John Dashwood's doing it makes you want to do it a little less. Yeah, I guess I don't really want to be associated with him. Eleanor's like, no, no, no. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I was watching him. He likes you. And Eleanor's like, no, he doesn't. And John's like, even if he's unsure now, just a little reassurance from you would secure him. And since, you know, you have no attachment And at this point, the way that he was talking about it, I was like, does he know about Edward and Lucy? Then I thought he must know because he's going on about how a match between Eleanor and Brandon would make everyone happy, including Fanny and Mrs. Ferrers. And I was like, that's weird that he's saying that, but he must know about something going on there. Then he says, it would be funny if Fanny's brother and my sister got married at the same time. And I was like, well, I guess he doesn't mean to each other, so he must know about Lucy. So then Eleanor asks if Edward is getting married, and John is like, well, Mrs. Ferris said she'd pay a thousand pounds a year if he marries Miss Morton. Yeah. No, he doesn't know about Lucy at all. No, not at all. Remember, this is a secret only Eleanor knows. Right. So I was wondering, Eleanor wasn't wondering, but she still was like, what are you talking about? Is he getting married? And the answer is, Probably. The answer is somewhat like when Catherine de Bourgh said Darcy and Anne were getting married. Okay, so this is orchestrated by the family. Yes, this is the consolidation of wealth at the top of society. You might notice that they're talking about the daughter of Lord Morton. So they're trying to get some nobility into that line. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a very advantageous match because of the economics of dating in Jane Austen for the sound effects. It's really come into play in the last few chapters. But no no one could possibly fathom that Edward would have 
been engaged for four years to a penniless girl. No, of course not. Of course not. My little brain was going a mile a minute trying to catch up with this story at this point. I was like, who the fuck is Miss Morton? No, nope. This is just matchmaker stuff. They're like, yeah, Edward will get married soon because we found him somebody rich. <laughs> yeah. So that that adds a layer to the whole conflict because Edward, now his family has someone in mind for him. Meanwhile, he had someone in mind for him. Now he doesn't want that person anymore, but he wants someone else who is also poor. And she's like given up on him completely because she thinks, oh, he's engaged. Now there's just like a whole other layer because his family's expectations have always been a problem for him. And again, Eleanor's not the best match for Edward, but she's not like egregious. Lucy's egregious. Right, right, right. Ugh. She's egregious in, in every respect. Oh my God. And I mean, Edward's in a pickle. <laughs> Edward's in a big pickle. Our boy, Eddie. <laughs> Eddie fucked up. He really done fucked up. And I I don't feel bad for him. He done goofed. He done goofed. <laughs> Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host, Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. Yes. So back to this part, though. John goes on about how generous Mrs. Fairs is, saying that she gave them 200 pounds when they came to London because they must live so expensively when they're in London. And Eleanor's like, um, but you're rich. And he's like, you don't understand. Okay. Then he goes on for a whole page about how his expenses and all of these things he has to spend money on, including the fact that he needed to buy new linens in China because all of the stuff was left to the sisters and Mrs. Dashwood. Yeah, rich people love to talk about how little money they have. Right? And this is what we were talking about a minute ago when you were saying, like, at a certain level, you're fine. Like, these people are fine. Oh, yeah, they're totally fine, but they feel the scarcity for no reason. Exactly. And... Jane Austen's clearly commenting on the higher classes there. Oh, yeah. Oh, 
Yeah, and then she, he t- tells her about all of the stuff they've done to the house and how expensive it was, including the new greenhouse, which they put up on the knoll, and they had to cut down all the walnut trees. And my first thought was, Marianne's going to be pissed. Then he goes on about the flower garden, where they had to clear away all the old thorns. And I was like, Marianne loved those old thorns. And Eleanor has the same thought. And she's like, it's a good thing Marianne's not here to hear this right now, because she's not in any kind of state. Yeah, they're like tacking up Norland, so. So sad. Yeah. Quote, having now said enough to make his poverty clear. He then congratulates Eleanor on her friendship with Mrs. Jennings, saying that Mrs. Jennings may leave her something in her will because they've gotten all buddy-buddy that she probably doesn't live up to her income because most people don't and she'll have a lot of expendable money. My thought was he's just spent the last page and a half complaining about how he's lived up to his income. It's truly well. I think that John Dashwood does a lot of like dancing in circles Mm. to justify why he stole all this money from his sisters Mm -hmm. and this is part of it he's like yeah mrs jennings will leave you something for sure like i didn't need to leave you anything because mrs jennings is gonna leave you something it's great it's great that you're friends with her that's exactly what he's doing he's like first of all colonel brandon has this much money so you're gonna be set mrs jennings is gonna leave you both this much so like you'll be set like it's gonna be okay that is some mental gymnastics my dude and once again john dashwood proves utterly pathetic Uh uh-huh Then he asked about Marianne, finally, saying that she doesn't look too good and um, she's lost her beauty and won't be likely to attract any man. That he used to think that she would get married first, but now he doubts she will at all. Gross. Jumping back briefly to what we were just saying about his feelings about how he stole all their money, a word that I want to define for our listeners because I had to Google it, compunction? Uh, he had junk, just compunction enough for having done nothing for his sisters himself. That means a feeling of guilt or moral scruple that prevents or follows the doing of something bad, which he has done. Yes, he has. So he's hoping they'll get all this money. Then he meets the Middletons. This is It's a lot of like social interactions in these chapters. Yeah, this is a lot of worlds colliding. Yeah. Um, he meets the Middletons. They like him. He likes them because they like him and also because they're rich. And he goes away saying that he's got great things to tell Fanny because they kind of assumed that Mrs. Jennings being a widow of a man who had gotten his money, quote, the low way. Trade. Trade. I mean, not necessarily trade. It could be law, um, but. But not born rich. New money. New money. New money. The unsinkable Molly Brown. Oh, yes. The unsinkable Molly Brown. Also Bingley's father. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So because of that, that she and her daughters, they assumed wouldn't be the kind of people they'd want to associate with. But he's going to go back and tell her that they are the kind of people they want to associate with. And that's the end of that chapter. Yes, it is. Which brings us to chapter 34. Fanny. Did you miss her? I did not. So (laughs) Fanny, for some reason, does in fact like Mrs. Jennings and loves Lady Middleton. And Lady Middleton just loves her right back. My favorite thing that they said was, quote, there was a kind of cold-hearted selfishness on both sides. <laughs> Just like these two utterly mean women love each other. BFFs. 
immediately. Yes. Meanwhile, Mrs. Jennings does not love Fanny. And when she's with her, she actually sits for seven and a half whole minutes in silence. Yeah. And it notes that Mrs. Jennings particularly notices how little Fanny likes her sisters. Yeah. Because Mrs. Jennings cares about those girls. Yes, she does. Oh, we love her. Justice for Mrs. Jennings. Justice for Mrs. Jennings. And for Margaret. Hashtag justice for Margaret and Mrs. Jennings. So Eleanor wants to ask about Eddie, like if he's in town, but she doesn't. And Fanny won't mention him because she believes that until she is proven otherwise, like until the rumors about Colonel Brandon, for example, are proven otherwise, she believes that Eleanor and Eddie are still attached. At least Fanny's smart enough to know that. Yeah, she's evil and smart. Devious. Devious. Yet another Yzma Kronk pairing. Yes, they are another Yzma Kronk pairing. I feel like I'm slandering Kronk here. I don't think Kronk's as evil, but... No, Kronk is kind of pure good. He's Yeah, exactly. What's the... It's like chaotic... Chaotic good. He's chaotic good. Well... Chaotic neutral? He's chaotic neutral. I think that's probably accurate, but... In any event. Regardless. She's evil. John's dumb. Exactly. And so she believes that they can't be too sedulously divided sedulously meaning showing dedication and diligence so she is working to keep them apart kind of like darcy trying to keep apart bingley and jane for example meanwhile lucy is complaining to eleanor that eddie can't come and visit her because they have to remain a secret so that that means eleanor now knows that he is in fact in town and then he tells them himself because he calls on them at berkeley street twice he comes by their house twice while they are not home and leaves his card and Eleanor is like thank god we weren't home but also the fact that he came and called on them twice he wants to see them he adores them I know but I mean Eddie get your life together you you can't keep doing this shit my friend (laughs) Eddie is in a pickle he's in a pickle and he can't stop and he keeps just digging himself deeper into this pickle he's deep in the pickle so John and Fanny like the Middletons so much that they invite them over to dinner, which is very unlike them because they do not like to show hospitality. And they also invite the Dashwoods, as they should, Mrs. Jennings and Colonel Brandon because we want to stir the pot. Eleanor is excited to meet Mrs. Ferrers because she thinks now she can meet her completely impartially as a third party, no strings attached, no feelings attached, girl, come on. She's like, oh yeah, no, I'm just an observer now. This is an audio medium, but Becca and I are squinting our eyes and pursing our lips like, "Mm -hmm." It's because we don't believe you, Eleanor. Eleanor Dashwood is a goddamn liar. Yes. So the Steels are also coming to dinner because why not? Why not get everybody in the same room? Apparently, the Steels have just completely wooed Lady Middleton. They have sucked up so hard to her. And she invited them to stay a week at her house. They are con artists. Lucy is good at what she does. She's like, let me bounce around to rich person house to rich person house. Oh, yeah. She knows what she's doing. She's like, your baby's so cute. All she has to do is be like, your children are so beautiful. I hope if I am ever blessed with children like that one day, like I I can have children half as beautiful, smart and pretty like and precious as yours. And Lady Middleton's like, stay forever. Yeah. Ugh. Then Eleanor gets stressed because she thinks, oh, Edward lives with Mrs. Ferrers. He's probably invited to dinner. I don't know if I can handle Lucy and Edward in the same room together at the same time. No, of course not. 
But then Lucy tells her that Edward will in fact not be dining with them because he wouldn't be able to hide his affection for Lucy in public. <laughs> no. The, the number of times I wrote gag in my margins in this chapter. I mean, our patrons are going to get a nice view of that, but Lucy is really laying it on thick for Eleanor right now. Mm-hmm. So dinner day arrives Tuesday and Lucy and Eleanor are walking in together and Lucy is going on about how nervous she is to meet the woman who will soon be her mother and Eleanor pity me. And Eleanor is like, She's about to be like, you mean Miss Morton's mother, but then she's like, no. Too mean, too mean. <laughs> she goes, I do pity you. And then Lucy's like, ah. I mean, what what is it? Uh, Jane Austen writes, like she basically just says, Lucy was disappointed because all she had was being envied by Eleanor Dashwood. Mm-hmm. To the utter amazement of Lucy, who, though really uncomfortable herself, hoped at least to be an object of irrepressible envy to Eleanor. So sorry to disappoint, Lucy. Eleanor don't give a fuck. Nope. Like, that's all Eleanor's whole game. It's just like, don't let Lucy get any satisfaction out of her. Yeah, which is amazing. So then we meet Mrs. Ferrers, and it turns out she sucks. Oh, boy. I mean, she raised Fanny, so. Yeah. She's got a severe face and a proud, ill-natured countenance. My favorite description was, she was not a woman of many words, for unlike people in general, she proportioned them to the number of her ideas. Yikes. Yikes. Very, very petty of Austin. Savage. But you know who else is petty? Mrs. Ferrers. Yes, very. She doesn't talk to Eleanor at all, and she's super nice to the Steels. and Eleanor is watching this, and she's amused because she's like, she's not talking to me because she thinks that I like Edward. But really, she shouldn't be talking to Lucy because Lucy's the one engaged. who likes Edward. Yeah. Who's engaged, who actually could ruin their lives. Oh, yeah. But she still hates them. She's like, ugh, but I hate both of the Steels. I hate Mrs. Ferris and I hate Fanny. So she's sitting there brooding. Lucy is thrilled by the attention. And Anne, quote, wanted only to be teased about Dr. Davies to be perfectly happy. Oh, <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. it. I don't know how you could have possibly gotten the impression that he and I are attached. I mean, I know he's handsome and that we talk. I I mean, I guess I could see why you'd think that, but stop it. Yeah. Stop it. (laughs) So the dinner is extravagant. And for all the indigence, which is the state of extreme poverty that John had complained of, quote, no poverty of any kind except of conversation appeared because everyone at the dinner is boring. Oh, yeah, except like Colonel Brandon, Marianne, and Eleanor. Yeah, they need to just like go off into another room with a bottle of wine and be like, let's hang out. Yeah, just shit talk Willoughby. Exactly. That was one of my favorite little bits uh, because the, the conversation lags. And after dinner, the ladies go into the drawing room and realize that without the men there, they have absolutely nothing to talk about because... Any little bit of conversation that did happen at dinner was the men talking about politics or horses or whatever. So all the ladies can do is compare the heights of Lady Middleton's son and uh, Fanny's son. And because the boys aren't there, they can't actually say who's taller. So everyone has to make conjectures about who might be taller. And this whole section was my funniest quote, probably. (laughs) All right, we'll read it at the end then, yeah. Yeah, I probably won't read the whole thing because it was a full page and a half long, but a summary. The two parties stood thus. (laughs) Just the fact that 
though that they said that and then outlined i was like why is this still going on it was so absurd <laughs> lady middleton and fanny each say the other person's son is taller because they want to be polite but mrs jennings and mrs Ferrers both say their own grandson is taller Meanwhile, Lucy thinks they're both remarkably tall for their age, and they must be the same height, and Anne agrees with her. Then Eleanor says that William Middleton is taller, which really offends the other, the Fanny and Mrs. Ferris. Marianne says she has no opinion because she has never sat down and thought about it. Which offends everyone. Which offends everyone. Then John brings out a pair of screens that Eleanor painted for Fanny before leaving Norland. Why did Eleanor make her this thoughtful gift? I don't know. It's because that, like, the ladies have to be accomplished. It's kind of like how Marianne plays the piano in every room she's in. Mm. It's just what people do <sighs> in this time. Yeah, I guess. So first, John hands the screens to Colonel Brandon as a way to be like, look how well Eleanor paints, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. Brandon's like, oh, wow, she does paint really well. <laughs> because, of course, he's her best friend. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> You gonna be okay? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. Because now it's like, now they're throwing it in my face. And I'm like, you know what? You liked the steamy simmer before? Yes, I liked it when it wasn't everyone, like when it was not mainstream. Yeah, but now that everybody else likes it, you're like, I was on this train before. Get over it. Yeah, now that it's like actually not just being hinted at, I'm like, hmm. So then everyone starts admiring them. Even Lady Middleton thinks that they're beautiful. Now, the room must be big because Mrs. Ferrers doesn't know that they're Eleanor's paintings and she asks to see them. And Lady Middleton brings them over and is like, look what Eleanor painted. And Mrs. Ferrers is like, hmm, very pretty. And then Fanny, instinctively, I guess, I don't really know where this comes from, but she defends the painting. She's like, hmm, they're really nice. But then she's like, <gasps> I think it's just because Mrs. Ferrers was so rude that even Fanny couldn't stomach it. Which is it's got to be really bad. Yeah. Thankfully, she catches herself and she's like, I can't be that nice to Eleanor. And she's like, oh, they're kind of like Mrs. Like Miss Morton's paintings, right? Like she paints landscapes so well. And then Mrs. Ferris is like, yes, but she does everything well. Because she's the daughter of a lord. Mm-hmm. Now, this is too much for our girl, Marianne, who turns in and she's like, who cares about Miss Morton? We're talking about Eleanor here. Like, who even is Miss Morton? And Mrs. Ferris is like, oh, how dare you? Another word to define for our listeners, Philippic. Philippic? Uh, Mrs. Ferris is upset about this Philippic, which means a bitter attack or denunciation, especially a verbal one. Mm-hmm. So that's what Marianne has done. Now, Eleanor is embarrassed at Marianne's outburst, but she sees how Colonel Brandon responds to it, which is like with big hard eyes because he just loves a woman who like cares so deeply about things and doesn't give a shit about society yeah he really does the colonel colonel brandon so marianne then runs over to eleanor and hugs her and whispers in her ear not to let them make her unhappy and then bursts into tears and everyone looks over and colonel brandon jumps up and runs over before he can even stop himself and mrs jennings comes over with smelling salts and sir john is like mrs Ferris made her cry i'm not gonna sit near her so he gets up and goes and sits by lucy and tells her everything that's just happened and after a few minutes marianne recovers but she's just kind of depressed the rest of the night and then john leans over to colonel brandon and is like you know it's too bad about marianne she's you know she's very nervous You might not believe it, but she was once as beautiful as Eleanor. Now it is all gone. He's really, really shipping. 
Oh, yeah. And he's just the worst. Like, fuck you. And he's the worst. That's his sister. Yeah. It's like a horrible thing to say about anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, I mean, anybody, but especially your sister. Yeah. So I don't think Colonel Brandon took it too close to heart. Oh, no. No, no. He probably is amused by it, honestly. That brings us to Becca's study questions. First, uh, class looms large over these chapters. Let's discuss those dynamics. The whole... John Dashwood's whole thing that he's got going on is it's so clearly Jane Austen just like bashing on the wealthy being like they don't care about anything else. Um, So that was pretty clear from him. Meanwhile, like the steals are like a different. They're also conniving like John Dashwood represents one class of people and the steals represent another. And I don't know what it is. I feel like we've talked about this a lot because we talked about it with Wickham too, where Jane Austen is making poor people out to be conniving. Jane Austen definitely does have her classist uh, biases, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And I think that the steals are a really good representation of that. But at least with Jane Austen, she is also punching up to the high classes because John Dashwood and Fanny Dashwood are a true indictment of the highest classes. So on both sides, you sort of have the problems with the lower classes and the Steels and the problems of the higher classes and the Dashwoods, the John and Fanny Dashwoods. And then you have the Dashwood girls in the middle sort of stuck by bad circumstance and their gender. So the dynamics of how Mrs. Ferris treats everyone, the dynamics of how everyone interacts with the Dashwoods and how everyone interacts with the Steels are very telling about how class is perceived in this time period and this dinner party is like a little microcosm of it Mm -hmm. no one has anything to talk about partially because of that yeah that's true and it's also um i want to just point to mrs fairs and mrs jennings being like old money and new money and like that dynamic as well Mm. i'm now i can't stop thinking of mrs jennings as the unthinkable molly brown i mean it's actually a very good comparison point thank you and then and then mrs fairs is like kate winslet's mom catherine de berg oh <laughs> or yeah yeah that's also true <laughs> yeah oh, yeah excellent insights there um so next is uh lucy Steele meeting edward's family what do you think are the stakes of that situation well they have no idea so she's like putting so much pressure on this situation in her mind like she's really leaning into it and she thinks that she's doing great but like she's only doing great because they still think that Eleanor has a thing for Edward, which she does. But I mean, yeah, but like a hopeless thing right now. Yeah. But yeah. And also, I think there's something to be said for how nice they're being to her right now mm-hmm. when she's not posing a threat to them. Yeah. They just think that she is this person who is there, um, but they they don't realize that she actually does have it in her power to like bring their family down a social rung. Yeah, I mean, I think it's that thing where uh, people don't acknowledge bigotry when it's not like every single person of that group is someone you hate, where you can kind of keep them in your social circle and be nice to them and be like, see, I'm nice to these people. But when they start to engage with your life in a more real manner, then they present the problem. Mm. The question is whether or not Lucy thinks she can sort of overcome those prejudices through being their friend. That's interesting. So we have Brandon and Eleanor shippers in this chapter. What does that tell us? 
It tells us that I did not make it up in my head. <laughs> I told you from the very beginning you didn't make it up. I honestly would not have told you you were wrong if it wasn't starting to shape the entire direction the book was going in. Yeah, yeah, no. And I, the thing is, like, seeing that it's actually written into the book, though, like, I knew that I was not reading into something that wasn't there. But to see, like, that actual characters in the book are starting to ship it, I mean... I know all of the reasons why you said it was a bad match, but, like, it's a better match from a social standpoint. It is a better match for Eleanor. Absolutely. Because she's the the oldest sister, and, like, she should be looking for someone like him. Additionally, Edward is in such a pickle. Like, it makes more sense. Edward is in such a pickle. Yeah. So um, it's validating to, to see people shipping it. Though, like I said, the more it gets thrown in my face, the less inclined I am to, like, hop on board with it because their friendship has become important to me the longer it goes on. Yeah, I think that their friendship does mean a lot to me because they get to, like, you know, they both care so much about Marianne. They do. They bond over that. It's special. They do have a very special friendship. I also want to point out something in relation to Marianne. Part of the reason people are starting to ship Eleanor and Brandon is that people are starting to write off Marianne. (gasps) Mrs. Jennings was so pro Marianne and Brandon for so long. Now she's like, oh, pro Eleanor and Brandon. And then John Dashwood is like, oh, advantageous match for Eleanor. God, Marianne's gotten ugly. I wanted to read the Mrs. Jennings going from shipping Marianne and Brandon to Eleanor and Brandon, the uh, sequence. So Mrs. Jennings, who knew nothing of all this, who knew only that the colonel continued as grave as ever and that she could neither prevail on him to make the offer himself nor commission her to make it for him, began, she's talking about um, offer to Marianne, began at the end of two days to think that instead of midsummer, they would not be married till Michaelmas. And by the end of a week, that it would not be a match at all. The good understanding between the colonel and Miss Dashwood seemed rather to declare that the honors of the mulberry tree, the canal, and the yew arbor would all be made over to her, and Mrs. Jennings had for some time ceased to think at all of Mr. Ferrers. Like, just one paragraph, she goes, hmm? Yep. And there's a, I mean, there's a combination of different things there. I mean, part of it is that Marianne has put herself in a state where she's, her reputation's at stake. The actors here might not be familiar with all the details or be more inclined to feel bad for Marianne. But the truth is she is now less marriageable than Eleanor for a numerous number of reasons, reputationally. And also because she's a sad sack right now. She's feeling her feelings and people don't want to see them. Which is heartbreaking. Very heartbreaking. Okay. um, Do you have predictions for John and Fanny's reemergence into the book? Oh, gosh. Well, I think it it has to, they have to be there in order for Edward to be there because they are hanging out with his mother. Yeah, I think that that their role is definitely going to be in the Lucy, Eleanor, Edward triangle in some way. They're going to get involved somehow. I don't know how. I think it's probably going to center around Fanny because, again, John is a cronk, so... (laughs) Fanny is going to be doing something. Mrs. Ferrers is going to be doing something. She does give off Major Catherine de Berg vibes. So she's going to meddle somehow. Something's going to happen. Okay, funniest quote. 
we did talk about this one a little bit, but I'm going to say it anyway. So we already know that the whole baby conversation was very funny, so I'm not going to read that whole entire thing. But going back a little bit to when Lucy is like, pity me, dear Miss Dashwood. Eleanor could have given her immediate relief by suggesting the possibility of its being Miss Morton's mother rather than her own, whom they were about to behold. But instead of doing that, she assured her with great sincerity that she did pity her, to the utter amazement of Lucy, who, though really uncomfortable herself, hoped at least to be an object of irrepressible envy to Eleanor. Ideal. Questions moving forward? Okay. Where is Eddie and all of, like, where is he? Shouldn't he be there? I don't know. When is he coming back? So, Edward. Two, I am curious about this man that we met in the the shop who looked Eleanor and Marianne up and down. I feel like he's important. I don't know who he is, but they focused on him a little bit too long. And I wanted to read. It says, uh, you know, he looks them up and down. A kind of notice which served to imprint on Eleanor the remembrance of a person and face of strong, natural, sterling insignificance, though adorned in the first style of fashion. I don't know what any of it meant. Like, is Eleanor remembering his person and face? Or is he looking at her with, like, as if he's trying to remember her? What is sterling insignificance? I googled it and it was like quotes from this book, so I had to not. He's fashionable. He's got a strong face. They have a fashionable young man. A fashionable young man. So I, I, I want to know if he's going to come back. All right. Who wins the chapters? Oh, wow. Who wins the chapters? Who would you say? I might give it to Marianne for defending Eleanor. Okay. Or either Marianne for defending Eleanor or Eleanor for her comeback at Lucy. Marianne really needs a win. Yeah. All right, so we'll give it to Marianne. I think we should give it to Marianne. Yeah, she did good. She defended her sister, even though she was clearly, like, going through it herself at the moment. Like, she needs a win. Yes. All right, so the win goes to Marianne. All right, listeners, that concludes this week's episode of Pod and Prejudice. For next episode, please read chapters 35 and 36. And until next time, stay proper. And find yourself a Dr. Davies. Stop, stop. Oh my God, I don't know why you could possibly think we're together. He's so cute. He's so cute, but like not but my stop kind. It, but I don't like him. Yeah, not as Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.